Have you ever um, have you ever met a Karen? And I don't mean like somebody named Karen. I mean somebody who acts like a Karen. Uh, a Karen is an entitled person who tries to use their position to get what they want. Uh, they're the ones who you know are always asking to speak to the manager. Uh, in fact, there's a, apparently there's a hairstyle that goes along with that. So. Beware, you don't want to get the Karen haircut. Uh, My wife told me a story the other day of pulling out into the traffic. Uh, We live off of Main Street, and uh, it can be difficult to pull out because there's businesses that line Main, and people park even up on the sidewalks, and so you can't see traffic coming in either direction. And so my wife pulls out, and, you know, instead of, uh, uh, and then she realized that there was a car coming, and instead of slowing down and just making way, she proceeded to speed up and get right onto her bumper. And then she pulls out her cell phone and she begins recording the whole driving episode. And, uh, you know, nothing came of it uh, except for that she filmed herself tailgating my wife. Um, but but uh, it, her reaction perfectly exemplified a Karen. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you've had some, uh, someone explode in public like that. And often their bad reactions can provoke other bad reactions. And then you'll have this kind of yelling match where everyone is trying to get justice for what they believe is right. My wife could have responded poorly in that situation, brake checked her, that's probably what I would have done, and then caused an accident and, you know, ensuing mayhem goes on. The question is, how do you respond to a Karen? How do you respond to someone who is self-centered, entitled, and willing to provoke you to anger? See, in our text this morning, David faces a male Karen, Nabal. And at first, David is tempted to respond with the same kind of foolishness that drives Nabal. David faces a particular temptation that has deep ramifications for his future kingship. And at the bottom of this is a deeper question. Will we trust God to make things right, to bring justice? Or will we take matters into our own hands? You see, David faces this temptation, one designed by Satan to come at a vulnerable time in David's life. It's a temptation as old as Eden. We'll reach out and take for ourselves, or will we be content to wait and receive it in God's time? So many of the problems that we face in our own lives revolve around this question. So let's look at this text from 1 Samuel 25 and see how David responds to this temptation. Please bear with me. This text is rather long, so I'll do my best. 1 Samuel chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. It is also printed for you in your bulletin. Now Samuel died. And all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man of Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men 
And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they miss nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all of this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. And David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. And we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that no one cannot cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared with five sayas of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain. Behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do do so to the enemies of David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, Because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow the Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you 
and to seek your life. The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care of the Lord your God. And the living of the, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition." And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. And that David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. And Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laash, who was in Galim. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we do give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask that as we open it, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we may behold wonders therein. For we pray this in Jesus' name and amen. Our text begins, Now Samuel died. And this is not just a historical fact thrown in for reference. This is the context for the temptation. Samuel was David's link to the prophetic call and anointing for kingship. Samuel anointed David. He is the one who speaks on behalf of God. With the prophet's death, the prophetic voice of God goes silent. Israel is not in good hands with Saul. And the future king is on the run from Saul. David, mourning the loss of Samuel, is most vulnerable at that moment from an attack. Not from Saul, but from Satan. Satan is shrewd and cunning, going there and here, seeking whom he may devour. He is not omniscient, so he does not know the future like God, but he is paying attention. And David must have surely piqued his interest 
He's already been overwhelmingly successful in thwarting Saul as king. And you can be sure that Saul's personal vendetta persecuting David is a diabolical plan of Satan. And it's at these moments when we feel the most vulnerable that Satan or our own desires tempt us. While in the, in the wilderness, David was a wall of protection to Nabal's shepherds so that nothing of theirs was missing. It's perfectly reasonable and keeping with Hebrews' expectations of hospitality to, to expect that Nabal would return David's kindness by granting his request that, to give whatever he had at hand on that feast day. But Nabal doesn't just say, well, I don't know how much I have. Let me make sure that all my servants are fed. Just wait here. If we have some left, you can have whatever I have. No, he, he flat out says no, and he insults him. He says, who is the son of David? Who is David? Who's the son of Jesse? There's so many people who are leaving their masters. I can't keep track of all these people. I worked hard for this. We are not a welfare state. Go and get your own. You're a nobody to me. David's men tell him how Nabal treated them. He becomes furious with rage. And you can picture the scene. David is a warrior leading a band of warriors who are sort of misfits. You know, they're not like the cream of the crop. These are the embittered. Those are who are in debt and those who have grievances. These guys have a bone to pick with Saul and anybody who gets in their way, right? These are not the kind of guys you want to mess with. And David said, strap on your sword. David readies 400 men, vowing to leave not one man to Nabal. Nabal, as Karen's go, is a textbook example of folly. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's clear from the structure of this story, sandwiched as it is between two episodes of David and Saul, where David has an opportunity to take Saul, to kill Saul, twice, in chapter 24 and in chapter 26. And this episode comes in the middle of that. And God is using these men to test David to see whether or not David will rely on God to deliver him or take matters into his own hands. And as far as verse 13, David has taken the bait. He has promised himself and his men that he will handle this. He vows not to leave one man to Nabal. Temptation is so subtle coming as it does here, wrapped in the garb of injustice. Just as last week, the temptation was to reach out and kill Saul with his own hand. This temptation has the appearance of rightness. David has men to care for and a reputation to uphold. And this man has slandered him and refuses to show kindness, to return the kindness that David has shown to him. Temptation sounds reasonable. It has a level of plausibility, but it's always a baited trap ready to spring shut. If you look closely at Satan's temptations, you can see that beneath them all, there's the promise of a shortcut to something, something possibly even a good thing. Satan tempts Jesus 
in the wilderness, as Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days fasting. And he, he tempts him by saying, just turn these stones into bread, offering him the shortcut to instant gratification. He comes with the same temptation when he says to the husband who doesn't want to put the work in of wooing and loving and nurturing and caring for his wife. Just look at the porn site. You don't have to care for her. You don't have to commit to her. You're not hurting anyone. She offers you gratification instantly. He offers a shortcut to the instant gratification of your desires. At other times, he comes with a shortcut of knowledge. He says, listen, do you want to know for sure if God loves you and will care for you? Jesus, just jump off the edge of the temple. Remember in Psalms it said he, he's going to send his angels. You're not even going to dash your foot against the rock. Do you want to know for sure if you're the son of God? Then test it. Try it out. Jesus says, we are not to put the Lord our God to the test. And this is the temptation to live by sight, not by faith. It is the desire to know so that you may control. Satan's temptation is a shortcut to waiting for God to act. He is offering a form of manipulating God to get him to do what you want. This is what I call the Google model. If we get enough data, if we can just get all the data in the world on everything, then we can manipulate our lives and then we can, we'll be like God. We won't need God. We'll know everything. Other times Satan comes with the offers of power. This is the particular tempting in our postmodern culture. Satan gives Jesus a vision of all the glories of the kingdoms. And he says, I can give you all of this. I can give you all of this power. Right now, all you have to do is bow down and worship me. He offers a shortcut around the bloody cross. At its core, every temptation to power is a rejection of the worship of God for something else. But in the end, the stones into bread, instant gratification turns to gravel in your mouth. Just as your porn can never satisfy and our thirst for knowledge never seems to give us any more control than when we started. Anyone who has compromised themselves in their shortcut to power has found only anxiety and fear at the top, waiting to eat them alive. Satan's shortcuts inevitably lead to one place, judgment and destruction. A place separated from God, where we lived hallowed out lives mere race of our former selves. David is tempted to seize the throne from Saul before God gives it to him. And now, at the provocation of Nabal, he is tempted to take revenge for a personal offense. Exactly what Saul's doing. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that God, God does not tempt us, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. James 1.14 but God does test us. He tests us to, so that we may grow, so that we may develop character. God is testing David by allowing Nabal to provoke David. How David responds is his responsibility. Will David be a king that waits on the Lord? Or will he be a king that takes matters into his own hands? 
He is testing each one of you for the same reasons. Not because he's not sure if you have what it takes, but to bring out your character and to mold you as a potter molds the clay. But every test is also an opportunity for temptation. Temptation from within and temptation from without. Will you attempt to shortcut the process, grab the glory before you are ready for it? Will you reach out and take the fruit? Or will you look for the way out, holding fast to faithfulness? Thankfully, the Lord does not abandon us in times of testing. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Amen. He doesn't just leave us. God also provides a way of escape. And for David, that way comes in the form of a beautiful and discerning and wise woman. She is the contrast, the foil for Nabal. He is Lady Folly and she is Lady Wisdom. And Lady Wisdom calls to the simple, Come, heed my voice. Just at the right moment, when David is vulnerable, when he's going to make the biggest mistake of his kingship, a servant of Nabal is privy both to how Nabal mistreated David and also knowledgeable of how David had treated the shepherds while in the wilderness, comes to Abigail and recounts the situation. He conveys only the facts, but he leaves the decisive action to Abigail. She wastes no time. She takes what was most certainly prepared for the feast for Nabal, and she prepares a present and sends it ahead to David. And Then she saddles a donkey and heads down after it, all without breathing a word to her foolish husband. Meanwhile, David is rehearsing to himself his grievance. He's breathing out death threats against Nabal and his household. And then he runs into Abigail. She hurries to get down and she bows with respect to him. And then she launches into a marvelous speech, proving the Proverbs truth that a soft answer turns away wrath. But I want you to notice the content of her speech. Now God provides a way of escape through this wise woman's words. First, she pleads with him not to regard her husband, for he is a fool. That's his name. That's who he is. Nabal is his name and foolishness is with him. Had she been there, she says, when David's men came, the outcome would have been different. But then she does something remarkable. She shows a stunning boldness and she presumes that God is using her to restrain David from doing something foolish. Restraining David from acting like Nabal. Restraining him from blood guilt. She proceeds with remarkable faith to remind David of God's promises. The crux of her speech is this. Far be it from David that he should become king in this way. For David surely will be king. But how? And what will David feel when he's sitting on the throne? Will he feel regret? Will his conscience be so burdened with blood guilt that he can't rule well? No. Because 
Abigail has come with wise words to restrain him from this so that he can sit with a good conscience and judge rightly. Remember that this episode is sandwiched between two opportunities for David to take Saul's life. And here on the lips of wise Abigail, we have the reason why this would be foolish. Look at her speech in verse 30. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, that is David, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. See, God provides a way of escape from temptation to take matters into his own hands through the sober reminder that we are not to work salvation for ourselves. We're not to take matters into our own hands. We are to wait on the Lord. And in this test, David is learning not, not only to take, not to take matters into his own hands, but he's learning patience and perseverance in the midst of his wilderness sojourn. He's learning that longing for justice and taking justice into our own hands are two different things. There's a scene from the movie Batman versus Superman that, that reminds me of the scene from David. Spoiler alert. You have the devil figure of Lex Luthor. And he is trying to create a feud between Batman and Superman. And he begins to lay out all these ways that it, it seems like Superman is the enemy of Batman. Like he's, he's the one that's caused all the injustices. He, Superman becomes sort of a scapegoat. And Batman goes on a personal vendetta to try to kill him. He's discovered Superman's weakness, kryptonite. And he comes dangerously close to accomplishing that goal. But, but when he's about to kill Superman... Superman cries out, save Martha. I have to save Martha. Martha happens to be the name of both Batman and Superman's mothers. And just the mention of Batman's mother's name, he realizes what he's doing. He thinks back to the time when his mother was killed right in front of him by a thief. And like, it's like his conscience just comes alive. And he realizes Superman is not the enemy. He realized his pursuit of justice was misguided. There were bigger, greater enemies. We saw something similar in, in 2020 with BLM mobs that, that ransacked the major cities. There, there's a palpable sense of we want justice now. And you can sympathize with them. But they go about it all in the wrong way. We're hardwired to want justice, and that's not bad. But what, it, what is bad is to work salvation for ourselves. We're fired up at the sinful actions of others, and rightly so. But we quickly forget that the greatest injustice in the world is not being slighted by Nabal or persecuted by Saul. The greatest injustice is the innocent Son of God dying for the sins of wicked men and women like you and me. Although Jesus was tempted to have justice without the cross, 
He was tempted to take Satan's shortcuts to glory. He turned away from temptation and embraced the cross. He didn't turn away from the cross because it was unjust. He turned towards it. He set his face to go to it. He embraced the suffering of the cross because it was there that he took on himself the sins of you and me. And he paid the penalty that we could never pay. And there on that cross, Jesus made justice flow as far as the curse is found. And he turned sinners to saints. Guilty men condemned to die to justified members of a new community formed in Him. In Him, God has provided a way of escape for all those who look to Jesus in faith. In our most vulnerable moment, our most vulnerable times of temptation, Jesus is a refuge from the storm and a haven of rest for those who are wearied from running from Saul. Who are wearied And Jesus promises that one day He will come again and He will put everything right. He will bring justice with Him. The wicked won't get away with their wickedness forever. And the fool's provocation will return on His own head. But until that day, He calls us to wait. Just as David did. We know the rest of the story. We know that David will one day be king. And it will be magnificent. We know that God will put down all of David's enemies and that he will expand the territory of Israel. We know that God will make a promise to him in 2 Samuel 7 to make him an enduring dynasty that lasts forever. And we know that the Lord Jesus is great David's greater son, the hope of all the world. But David only knows that by faith. He doesn't know the end of the story like we do. David only has promises that he, ha- he must hold tight to while he lives in a cave, while he scrapes out a living in the wilderness, while he even makes a living with Israel's enemies, the Philistines. But David sees the way of escape from temptation snares and the wise words of Abigail, and he accepts her gift He has to be content not getting justice. But he's armed with fresh courage through the words of Abigail. She rehearsed the promises of God to David and reminded him of the dangers of sin. Don't do it, David. Don't make yourself guilty. Because when you sit on the throne, your conscience will eat you alive. And you will never be able to judge rightly. David turns away because he's reminded of the promises of God. God is faithful. And we have the same as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. Here laid before us is is a meal furnished perfectly to remind us of the moment when the sentence of death that we owed to God was paid in full by His innocent Son. We have in this meal a reminder that God's promise of justice has already begun to be fulfilled. We have a reminder that just as the promise to work salvation, to defeat David's enemies was fulfilled in the death of Nabal without David lifting a finger, so too has he worked salvation for us, defeating our enemies, namely death, 
and hell. And, the, and he did that in the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. And like the present from Abigail, we take these elements of bread and wine, signs and seals of Jesus' broken body and shed blood as the means God is using to sustain us in the wilderness while we wait for justice to come. So, with the Apostle Paul, for on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus, he took bread. And after breaking it, he gave thanks. And he says, this, this is my body which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As the elders come forward this morning, let me remind you that this is, 